0: You know, I used to think that this phrase that John uses to talk about himself, the disciple that Jesus loved, I thought that was kind of John's little way of saying, I'm Jesus' favorite. (laughs) But then, you know, I started teaching John's first letter to incoming seminary students just about every year, and God just sort of revealed this to me. I began to understand, oh, wait a minute. John is not doing that at all. Listen to what John wrote in his first letter, chapter 3. He says, this is how we understand what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What John is saying with this self-reference, the disciple that Jesus loved, is he's understanding something. That Christ's love has changed him, has redefined his sense of purpose and identity. That the sacrificial love of Jesus has made him a servant, has made him a witness of that same sacrificial love. How do you and I experience the full extent of Christ's love? How are our lives redefined and repurposed and reshaped by His kind of love? Not just the sentimental good feeling of having strong affection. No, the action of sacrifice, the action of giving of our resources and giving of our time and giving of ourselves that show others who our King is, who our Savior is. Read with me, if you would, from John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Jesus knew the hour had come for Him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around. Around him. Now, that phrase, love them to the end, I think is what you have in the ESV there, can also be translated, demonstrated the full extent of his love. What is the goal of Jesus' love? What is its full measure? What is its aim and purpose in our lives? Jesus showed them. You know, it's interesting, in John's version of the upper room, there is no emphasis on the bread. There is no emphasis on the wine. It was the same evening, it's the same account as we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but his focus is very different. He doesn't focus on the words of institution. Instead, John focuses on washings. There's three washings that he talks about and that he describes that I want us to consider this morning. You saw there in verse 1, it says, the hour has come. You might remember that that's one of the things that's unique about John's gospel is you'll remember the wedding at Cana and Mary asked Jesus to turn the water into wine and how Jesus responds to her and says, my hour has not yet come. Come. Or with the Samaritan woman in John 4, the hour has not yet come, but it is coming when Messiah will be here and when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. And then when Jesus heals the paralytic in chapter 5, my hour has not yet come, but you will see the Son of Man raise the dead. And that's what happens in John chapter 11. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's received as a king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. God save us. Why? There's such excitement and electricity in Jerusalem at the time of the feast. The city is 12 times its normal size. Everybody who's anybody wants to be with Jesus. But he's a different kind of king. He slips away from the limelight to an intimate dinner with His followers to show them what kind of king He is, to show them the full extent of His love. First of all, we see that we can't understand His love unless we first experience the washing of regeneration, the washing of regeneration. Jesus' dinners weren't like the Pharisees' dinners. The Pharisees loved the rhetorical debate. They loved the uh, theological gotcha questions. They loved the VIP seats around the table. And Jesus loved to invite the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. He loved the conversation, the interaction. And it's interesting, the Pharisees were very particular about the washings, that you must wash before you come to eat. Jesus really didn't pay much attention to the washings until this night. So when Jesus takes a towel and wraps it around himself and takes the basin, the disciples are watching. All eyes are on Jesus because now they have his attention. He's paying attention to the washings. It's interesting, in John's gospel, there's an absence of parables. If you notice, there's no parables in John's gospel. That's another thing that's unique about it. But there's several living parables. And that's what we have here. Jesus is basically dramatizing what the kingdom is like by washing the disciples' feet The living parable of John 13 is kind of like a cardiac crash cart. Jesus is shocking the system. He's doing something that breaks everybody's categories. And the disciples have to reconsider what their understanding is of the kingdom, what their understanding is of the king. What is righteousness? What is the love of God? You see, not even an indentured Hebrew slave would wash people's feet. Back then, you know, there was really no sewage system, so, and the roads, there, were no, there was no paving. So when you came into someone's house, you needed your feet to be washed. But it was the work of an outsider, not the work of a Hebrew. But Jesus takes the initiative. He gets up from the table. He takes the towel. From the head of the table, he moves to the role of a slave to bridge the huge chasm between God and man. You see, if we're going to know Jesus and his love, he must take the first step. He must know us first. If we are going to get involved with Jesus and his kingdom business, well, first he has to make the first move and get involved with us. And so, to demonstrate the love of God, He washes their feet. Jesus moves into all those parts of our lives, our dirty feet, our dirty laundry, that we just assume cover up. But if we're going to understand the extent of His love, He's going to come. He's going to come to every dark corner of our lives. When my son Stephen was just a tween, he had a dog named Max, beautiful yellow lab, and he just professed great love for Max. And, uh, and yet, whenever it came time for Max to get a bath, couldn't find Steven. Where are you, son? Right? So one day I was leaving for work, and I said, son, it's time for Max to get a bath. Uh, can you do that before I uh, get back home from work? Yeah, 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 I'll I'll take care of it. So So as soon as I start driving into the driveway, I see Stephen run around the side of the house, and he still kind of has, you know, his regular clothes on. And there he is chasing Max around the backyard with the hose, spraying from a distance. So every dad here knows the next move, Right? So I take off my jacket, I start undoing my tie, I said, okay, Stephen, if you really love Max, we're going to have to get down and dirty. Come on, let's go in the house, we're going to put all of our dirty clothes on, We're We'll take our shoes off, because we're about to get wet with Max. And we would just sit down, grab a hold of Max, start soaping him up start getting that shampoo all over him. Now, by the end, Max was clean. And Stephen and I covered, covered with wet yellow hair and dog stink, right? That's what Jesus did. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made clean, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. If we're going to understand how much Jesus loves us, we must first experience the washing of regeneration. That was Luther's great breakthrough in 1516, 1517. He saw that his failed dead heart needed a cardiac shock from the outside. He needed a health, a holiness. He needed life given to him. And he met the one who is life, the one who is love. Look back with me to John 13 and verse 6 where Simon Peter is still struggling with the shock factor. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Let me, let me read that part again. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It won't happen. Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet because his whole body is clean. This is the second washing that Jesus is teaching us about. You see, Simon Peter, he's a self made guy. He's a fisherman. He's used to fixing his own nets, fixing his own boats. He just as soon washed his own feet. Thank you very much. But Jesus insists unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that's a special word in Greek. It's, it's very clear what Jesus is talking about. You have no portion with me, you have no inheritance. With me. And that's why Simon responds so dramatically and says, Oh, wait a minute, wash me all over. But Simon Peter is confusing a couple of different washings about this living parable that Jesus is dramatizing. Don Carson's commentary on John's gospel really helps us here, it helps guide us through the difficulties. He suggests that Jesus is applying the metaphor of washing in at least three ways. That first, a bath is needed for conversion. But second, we need our feet washed. The washing of confession, the washing of sanctification every day. Because without holiness, no one will see God. And then thirdly, with Jesus' command to wash one another's feet... It's the washing of service, the demonstration of God's love in witness. So Peter's confusing the second two kinds of washings with the first washing. And what Peter really needs now, what you and I need, what we just experienced in our confession and the assurance of pardon is that daily splashing in the double grace of God. You see, that was one of the other incredible insights of the Reformers. Calvin and Luther distinguished between justification and sanctification, but they didn't separate them. Calvin called justification and sanctification a double grace. You see, they're related. Yesterday, there was a wedding here. Yesterday was pretty exciting. It seems like an exciting time to come to Redeemer. There's weddings, there's fires, there's elections. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And yesterday, we had a a, a picture of the relationship between justification and sanctification. You see, justification is like the wedding. The taking of vows establishes a new identity, a new covenant There's a new legal identity. We stand before God forgiven, free. And yet then the marriage starts where the covenant words of that identity start to get lived out in daily life. Now, I don't know about you men, but it's taking me a while to put on the practices of married life. There's times when I, you know, I want to use my Saturday morning the way I used to use my Saturday morning. There's times that uh, I just find myself in those old clothes instead of putting on the new clothes of what it means to be a married man now. And that is our life with Christ, and that's what Jesus is getting at with Peter. Peter, you've been bathed. You've been united. You have a new identity. You have a new life now. Now. It's time to live that out. What does that love look like? What does that clean, righteous life look like? So we experience the full extent of God's love when first we experience the washing of regeneration. And second, when we splash in the double grace of sanctification. John wrote elsewhere in this letter that I mentioned earlier if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer articulated well that to stay close to Christ, to keep sensitive to his love, there must be ongoing, honest confession to each other and to the Lord that we have no righteousness. Of our own. Do you remember that Jesus said to Peter, Right now you won't understand, but later you will understand. Later, after you've denied me three times. Later, after the cross. Later, after he he runs the foot race with John to the empty tomb and he sees the empty tomb with his own eyes. Later, When there's this meal by the sea, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? And three times he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Like Peter, we struggle with measuring the full extent of Christ's love, with fully understanding. Right now, we don't fully understand, but later, later we will fully understand because we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So turn with me one more time back to John 13, starting in verse 10. You are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone is clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. If you do them. There's more than just the messiness of our confessions that relates to understanding the full extent of God's love. There's also the call to service. The call to demonstrate the love that we have experienced ourselves. I don't know how I missed it, but I had read right over it many years You probably caught it right there in verse 10. You were clean, not every one of you, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Judas is still in the room. It's not until verse 30 that John tells us that Judas leaves. There are two disciples out of all 12 that are featured in John's account. Peter, the denier. Judas, the betrayer. He serves them both. He washes both of their feet. Wouldn't it be good if we could see people's hearts? If we could see who's going to maybe deny but will come back to Christ and therefore the investment of our ministry will have been worth it. And we could see who's going to be the betrayer and we just wouldn't waste our time with them. But Jesus sees both of their hearts and he washes their feet. In 2016, I was on the faculty at Covenant Seminary, and I had a sabbatical, Uh, and Dr. Richard Pratt, who's the president of Third Millennium Ministries, said, Greg, I have a a job for you. Will you use part of your sabbatical and come with me to Indonesia and to China? Now, let me just warn you, if Richard Pratt asks you to do something, just beware. Just beware. There's going to be a lot involved I had the privilege of going and seeing some of the Jumpstart workshops. Our Mandarin coordinator, Dr. Chen Biao, who's from Chengdu, had designed a system of eight courses, and the leaders of various house churches would come to these workshops. About 40 of them would, would come into Shanghai, and they'd come into a, a hotel that was owned by a Christian family, and for two days, there'd be an intense focus on a course, on a part of our curriculum. Not just the content of it, but that they would be trained to go back and to teach it in their home churches. There was a, a man there by the name of David, that's his English name, who was a pastor in Beijing. And he asked me if I would go with him from Shanghai on the bullet train back to Beijing to see their clandestine seminaries. And he asked me if I would preach in the underground church. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the underground church in China, but I wasn't thinking of high rise apartment complexes. And there were five of them, and we Ubered into the complex together and were kind of brought into uh, the place where they meet. They had taken two different apartment flats and they had made them a place where seminary students could live, and where church services could be held. And on that morning, prayer started at 8 o'clock, and everyone gathered. I mean, everyone came. And I was really struck by what they were praying about. They, They were praying like we were this morning for missionaries. They were praying for people who were sick. But they were also praying about the fact that This brother's business license was going to be taken away this week. How is he going to feed his family? This church that they knew about in Wenzhou, uh, their building was going to be bulldozed. How are they going to continue to meet? The seminary that I had the privilege of visiting, the faculty members had, I was in the meeting when they were deciding that they were going to have to meet at three different places because they were under surveillance. Year one students were going to meet at one place. Year two students were going to meet at another place. Year three students at another place. Entering in to the sacrificial love of the Savior with such a hunger to know more about that love and know more about that truth. I preached on this text at 9 o'clock and then at 10 o'clock we gathered into small groups. I didn't know that My sermon was going to be the topic of the small groups that morning. But I remember in the small group of brothers and sisters that I was in, David was translating. There was a Christian brother there. He kept repeating, Jesus washed Judas' feet. Brothers, pray for me. This tests my faith. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Brothers, please pray for me. This tests my faith. You see, they met in groups of 50 so they would know who's there by name. And yet still government spies had been planted in their midst. They'd lost and had to rebuild at least twice the gains that they had made before. And this brother was, was playing out the scenario And asking important theological questions, he says, Can we afford to close our hearts to protect ourselves and not to share the love of Christ that changes hearts? Judas, his feet were washed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, pray for me because this tests my faith. How do we experience the full extent of Christ's love, first, in the washing of regeneration, second, when we splash around in the double grace of confession and experienced forgiveness anew, but third, when we take the risk, not knowing the hearts of our neighbors, of our co-workers, of the families at our kids' schools, and we risk demonstrating the love of Christ, and we wash our neighbor's feet because Jesus washed ours. Brothers and sisters, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we Praise you and we worship you and we thank you that your kingdom is not limited to one nation. That you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and because you emptied yourself of the glory of heaven, the Father has exalted you to his right hand and given you a name that is above every name that at your name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Lord, thank you that from the throne you poured out your spirit on this church redeemer presbyterian church and you've given gifts you've given a story of grace a testimony lord would you empower each one of us that we might understand your love more fully and that we might demonstrate your love to each other and to our neighbors that your glory might grow not only here but in Uganda, in China, in every nation, in every tongue. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.